Well, good morning. Well, I've never done this before, but I want to do it again. Good morning. I thought I was the one working until about 12 o'clock this morning. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to share the Word of God, and certainly do appreciate the opportunity. And as you're making your way to 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, I do have the good pleasure to share from the first seven chapters of this book as we continue looking at the progression of the nation of Israel. And today we are certainly going to be looking not so much at the nation itself, but hopefully we'll get a picture of their God, the God that we are worshiping even today. And we can certainly learn a lot about him as he related to his people And so as we begin our study today, let's go to the Lord to ask for his help. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have afforded us this opportunity, Lord, to gather publicly to demonstrate our dependence on you, our love for you, and our pleasure in you. Thank you that you have given us hymn writers to provide songs for us to sing and music to which we can sing it to. Thank you that you provided leaders in our church that guide us and pray, Lord, that you would continue to be with us as we look into your word. May this be a profitable time. Pray, Lord, that you would open eyes to see the wondrous things that are found in your law today. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to uh, not only see the word being cast as seed, but may this seed fall on good fertile ground so that it might grow and it might take root and it might produce fruit for the kingdom. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably have just gotten over it and don't want me to bring it up again, but aren't you glad you haven't seen a political ad recently? Uh, you get to the point where those things are just irritating uh, because you, it just only makes you that much more anxious and worried about how things are going to turn out. And that's somewhat reflective of the world in which we live because we have been conditioned to believe that what happens through an election, whether it be good or bad, is going to have an effect in the world in which we live. Uh, It may have an effect on the economy. It might have effect on moral issues that we face. It it may affect uh, the ability for us to freely do things that we would like to do or uh, keep us from doing things we would like to do. And oftentimes we are... Way too excited when things go the way we would like for them to be, and we get way too pessimistic and negative when they don't go the way that we would like for them to go. So regardless of what your take on the most recent election was, I hope that as we study the Word of God today, that our hope and our emphasis isn't going to be so much on what happens every two years or every four years in our country. But what has been happening from the beginning of time and what will continue to happen throughout all of eternity. Pastor Tim already sort of prepped us for what all of eternity is going to be like. That is worshiping God. Our Christian growth groups have been sort of preparing us for a kingdom that hopefully you were already looking forward to. But the more information we have as to its beginning and God's sovereign will in in establishing a kingdom that we will continue looking forward to the establishment of when Jesus Christ returns and that he will reign forever and ever. The one thing I'd like for you to take away today is about our hope. As you see on the screen, it's not very profound. It's It's not anything new. But hopefully you will continue after today knowing that our hope should remain in the one who has brought us thus far. For that's all we know. We've been given a prophetic word that tells us what life will be. We've been given a prophetic word that tells us what will happen. We've been given a prophetic word that tells us that God is going to be overall victorious. But all we know is up to today. The only thing that we have experienced is what we have lived and breathed up to this point. But we can rest assured that our hope is well placed if it is in Him who has brought us thus far. 
That's what the nation of Israel had been given the challenge to do. It's really easy for us as we think back over the book of Exodus and we think through the life of the patriarchs in Genesis and we think through the kings and the monarchs of the nation itself and we think about the captivity that they went through. And it's really easy for us to, even when it comes to disciples, to, to ridicule them for their lack of faith. To stand in judgment, if you will, or critique them because... Why would they be so weak and why would they be so willing to give up on what was true and to, and to give up on the purpose that God had given them? But when we consider the lives that they lived through and the, and the world in which they lived, without something called the Word of God, without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit Himself, it causes us to be just a little lighter on them, maybe a little more humble, and hopefully we can be a little bit more receptive to that which has been given. As Paul tells us, the things which were written before time were given to us so that we might increase in our faith. So that as we believe in the God of the Scriptures, that we could look at their example and learn a little about us, but more importantly, learn a lot more about God. And that our hope and our faith would be resting Solely upon Him. So as we begin today, there are not going to be any particular passages of Scripture that we're going to be looking at, but we're going to be looking at uh, points here and there. That's about the best way to keep this from lasting about three hours for the first seven chapters of First Samuel. So hopefully it will be profitable time. Hopefully it will be effective. Pray that the Holy Spirit will be able to teach us much today. But the first thing I'd like for us to consider is this condition of an unfaithful kingdom. The condition of an unfaithful nation. The first thing that I would like for us to recognize isn't found in the book of 1 Samuel, but rather in the last verse of Judges chapter 21, uh, that being in verse 23, in which they had no king. And because of the fact that they had no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Our nation is less than 300 years old. But for more than 300 years, the nation of Israel, after it had found its place in the land of Canaan, found itself without a king. We've spoken about the judges, as Pastor Tim has led us through the book of Judges, and how there was just a cycle of falling into sin. Earning the consequences of that sin. A repentance and a calling upon God for help to deliver them from that consequence. And a period of revival only to do what? Fall one more time. And to suffer the consequences of that sin. To call upon God to help. To find revival. To fall back into sin. And that cycle repeated over and over again. And, it, and the judges were God's gift to the people to help. But in the, during this time, people were doing that which was right in their own eyes because there was no king. As I mentioned earlier, our Christian growth groups have been reminding us of the importance of a king. And that even the kings that we find in the scriptures, particularly the king we know as David, but being a forerunner of the true ultimate king that one day we will have, who will reign upon the earth, and he will come, not as he did the first time to suffer, but the second time to judge and to rule with a rod of iron, to guide the nations and to lead his people into life. So that's the first condition of this unfaithful people. The second condition of this unfaithful nation was a corrupt priesthood. If you will look there in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, Verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priest with the people. Eli was the priest in his day, and he had two sons. We're introduced to them here in this passage of Scripture. But I think that we need to make sure that whether we know their names or not, we need to understand what type of men they were. They were worthless. In other words, they were not fulfilling the duties of which they were given to do as priests. In verse 17 of chapter 2, we see one of these sins. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men, number one, despised the offering 
of the Lord. What would happen with the, as these priests were looking over the uh, ministry of the offerings and the sacrifices, as the people would bring their offering of meat, they would sacrifice their animal, and most of the time the offering would be burned up because it would be completely full for the Lord. And what was left over, the priests, because they didn't have any land, they didn't have any resources of their own, were dependent upon the people to bring something substantial enough that once you sacrificed most of it, there would still be something there left for them to eat. And this is how they, much of their living was made, through the offerings that the people would bring to the Lord. Now what Eli's sons would do, is before they could even get the fire started really good and start roasting this animal... They would go and they would have a big fork. I'm picturing this like, you know, the the fork like you'd pitch hay with. Not like one that you would have sitting at your, you know, table uh, in eight, you know, pieces there. But they would take a big fork and they would just simply dive the fork into the piece of meat. Whatever they could rip out was theirs. If they didn't like what they got, guess what? They'd dive in again. And this was before this offering had been made for the Lord. They had contempt for the offering. In other words, what God said was holy, that you bring and you sacrifice to me, they felt that they were able to take what they wanted because they were priests. Now think of it this way. We took the offering, and Pastor Chad, Pastor Tim, they were not involved in receiving the offering. I don't believe they're going to be involved in counting the offering. I don't believe they're going to be involved in much other than that. But what would you think about our pastors if right before the ushers were to gather that's for me. Wait a minute, that's a little light. Let me let me let me dig in one more time and put in. They'd be crooks, wouldn't they? Wait a minute, that offering is to go for the furtherance of the kingdom. That, that, that's to go to support the ministry of the church. That's to go to, to help others present the gospel and to, to minister to the needs of the church family. You can't do that. That would be contemptible. But the sons of Eli, they didn't care. And this was one way in which they sinned. But that's not all. In verse 22... We see that now Eli was very old and he heard about all what his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. These were men who had illicit relationships with women who had been called to ministry. Those people would go into the place of worship. These women were there to assist the people. But the priests took it upon themselves to fulfill their lusts. This wasn't like the other nations who had prostitutes for their worship. These were servants of God. That they would abuse and mistreat. All in their arrogance. It's one thing not to have a king and to have people running throughout the land doing whatever was right in their own eyes. But you would like to think that you'd have some sort of safety. When it came to the worship of God, but here are your priests. They were not just doing what was right in their own eyes. They were doing what was contemptible before God and, 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 and evil in the eyes of everyone else. But they were the priests. What are you going to do? These are your mediators before God. If you were to relate well before God, you had, you had the priests. You couldn't go before God as, as a non-Levite. You couldn't, out in the backyard of your house, go out and, and offer your own sacrifice. God had made it very clear. And the individuals that you were placing your trust in to represent you before a holy, righteous God has contempt for the offering and are abusing the relationship between themselves and the servant women of the temple, or not at the temple, but of the tabernacle at this time. I'm very grateful that we live in a day that when we look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, 
Beginning in verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. This is the way God set it up. Eli's sons were a part of this program. Now it says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Boy, could Eli's sons relate to weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God, or only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ. Here's our hope. Here's our ability to overcome the wickedness and the evil of men. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's our high priest. Thankfully today, we do not have sinful, wicked men standing on our behalf before God. But we have the ultimate God-man. Jesus Christ himself. Who came humbly. He came and suffered. He demonstrated His obedience to God through His suffering on the cross. And because of what He accomplished through His obedience, He can now stand and we can now boldly come before the throne of grace. Not meekly, not wondering if His sins had been atoned for, but because He's perfect. He's just before God. So that when I go before God now through Jesus Christ... I'm seen through His works of righteousness. I know that my petitions will be heard. I know that I will obtain grace and mercy in the time of need because I have a great high priest who has shown himself faithful. But the nation of Israel? Not so. They were subject to a priesthood that was corrupt. They were subject to a nation that had no king. But that's not all. This nation also did not have much of the word. For First Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and the word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. The Lord was rare. The word was rare. We can't relate to that very well because on every bookshelf, perhaps in your home, there's probably a copy of God's Word. There's a church on every corner, seemingly, where you can at least be exposed to the Word, whether it's being presented well or not, that's maybe up to debate. But at least we have translations galore in just the English language so that we can better understand God's Word. Despite the fact that there are a hundred people, groups, and languages that don't have a translation that they can read, the Word of God is very prevalent today in our language. But in those days, the Word from the Lord was rare. Visions were infrequent. Being able to see what God was saying, the prophetic Word, was something that you just didn't hear every day. Now, it wasn't completely absent. If we go back to chapter 2, there was a man of God who came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in, the e- when it were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them for all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice? That my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling. And honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with me with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your fathers should walk before me forever. But now 
The Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me I will lightly esteem. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever, yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve. And then the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be a sign to you which, you will, which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. I will build him an enduring house and will walk before my anointed ways. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. Now this was a needed word. This was a nation that had a corrupt priesthood and there was a man of God. We don't know his name. We don't know where he came from. But that doesn't keep God from speaking to His people. This was a man of God, and a man of God throughout the Old Testament was known as somebody who was speaking on behalf of God. It wasn't a man who was perfect. It wasn't a man who had all his his house in order. It was a man who was God's spokesman. And here was God's spokesman coming in a very opportune time to say, why are you kicking at these sacrifices? Why are you doing this to my offerings? There's going to be consequences to pay for that. Eli, to your household, there's not going to be an old man left. I'm going to leave someone just enough to grieve and to weep over the death of your sons. And that's all. It was a word of judgment. And oftentimes, in the world in which we live... That's a piece of God's Word that we don't want. That's a piece of God's Word that reminds us that there are some actual holy standards that God has established for His people. That there are actually some commandments that He has given us to obey. There's actually some ways in which we should live that are pleasing to God. And if we don't, if we are in contempt of His worship, if we hold His ministry in contempt, there are consequences. And here in Eli's life, while Eli was able to see what his sons were doing, his lack of discipline did not change anything. And because of that, God was going to act. However, that was not God's only action. Again, as we read from Hebrews chapter 5, we see a foretaste of what this man of God was talking about. There's going to be an eternal priesthood that's going to come along. I don't need your sons anymore. But there's going to be, there's coming a priest that will be established forever. My faithful priest who will do according to what's in my heart. What's according to what I want to do in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house. And he will walk before me, my anointed always. That's our great high priest who has come. And he stands before us now. Before God. But he's also one of a faithful servant. It's important for us to see how important the scriptures are. In Psalm 19, hopefully a very familiar passage, in verse 7 through 11, we read just how important the word of God is. For the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. I hope that you truly know the value of God's word today. That you would, you would, if you were in this land where the word of the Lord was rare, you would understand why that would create such dismal times. It's not just because we don't have something exciting going on. 
It's not because we can't run down to the bookstore and find a good video series or a book study to go through that's going to excite us. But if you lived in a nation where the word of the Lord was rare, what would you miss? What would you miss? Could you get along with what you heard on the news? Could the sports page get you along from day to day? Could the water cooler talk at work? Would that be sufficient for you to sort of anticipate what the next day was going to hold? Or would you find yourself desperate if the Word of the Lord was rare? If you all of a sudden had no Bibles in your house, if all of a sudden there were no radio stations or television stations that was broadcasting good expository preaching, What would your life be like? Would you miss it? They were living in a land where the word of the Lord was rare. But before we think that it's something that it's just something that we need, we need to understand that it's more than just something that we need. We need to understand that it's all that we need. It's first or second Peter chapter one. We read, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. Wait a minute, Peter. You visibly saw the glory of Jesus Christ revealed there on the mountain. And you're telling me something that's even more sure than that? Peter says we have something more sure. The prophetic word. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is it. This is more sure than seeing Jesus Christ Himself transfigured in His glory on the side of a mountain. We have a much sure Word. I hope that you understand that your dependence upon the Word is great and necessary and sufficient. When you look down through church history, the attacks that come upon our faith are deeply rooted in attacks upon the Word of God. If we can just somehow not tell you that God doesn't exist or that there isn't a better way, but if we can just somehow get you convinced that did God really say that? That's been Satan's scheme from the very beginning. Not necessarily trying to remove God's Word, but just distort it. To add things to it. To subtract a few things from it. To make it more palatable. The nation, this faithless nation of Israel, that had no king and had a corrupt priesthood, was desperately in need of the Word of God. They needed to hear the word of the Lord. And this man of God shows up to pronounce judgment upon the house of Eli, but also to provide a promise to his people that there is coming a priesthood that will be established forever. A mediator that will stand before you and a holy, righteous God, and you will be able to stand before him forever. Another condition of this faithless people was the oppression by their enemies. Chapter 4, verse 2, we see the Philistines. They drew a line up against the Israelites. This is another way they were getting ready to fight. And in chapter 4, we see that Israel, 
thought that the way that they could easily win would be like doing like the other nations did. The other nations, what they would do is when they would fight, they would bring their idols. They would bring their representations of their God to the battlefield. And that was their God's presence to help them win. So you take a faithless nation who has no king, doing that which is right in their own eyes. They have a corrupt priesthood, so their their whole spiritual relationship with God's already messed up. They have a rarity in hearing the word of the Lord. What are they going to do? They're a smaller group of people, so tell you what. Um, you remember when, when our fathers, they crossed over the Jordan River? The, the waters parted because they let the Ark of the Covenant go before them. And, and the Ark of the Covenant is, is where the presence of God dwells, right? So let's take our God and let's take Him out to the battlefield and we'll win. Now, Moses didn't record anywhere in the law that when you go to battle, put the Ark of the Covenant... In front of all your troops. There was no instruction to let the Ark of the Covenant represent your might and power. But that's what they chose to do. To their dismay, the Philistines knew more about this Ark of the Covenant than they did. When they saw what was taking place, uh, the Philistines actually started talking to themselves, saying, hey, they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant. We, we can't mess around because you remember the Hebrews, that's the, their God is the one who brought them out of Egypt. Egypt was a nation that the reason why the Philistines were where they were is because they couldn't get past the Egyptians. They knew that Egypt was a mighty nation. And while during this time period, Egypt and the other large nations probably were at their weakest, they were still a strong and mighty nation. And they said, we certainly don't want to be overcome by people who were able to deliver themselves out of Egypt. So we better muster up, buddies. We, we better really fight hard. And they did. They knew that they were going against a people who was represented by a God who was great. And they took this more seriously than the Israelites did. And they won. They took the Ark of the, the Ark of the Covenant for themselves. They placed it in their temple. Had a couple of misfortunate accidents with their own God, idols and statues falling over and breaking pieces off, and to the point where they said, "You know what? Uh, not only are we motivated to overcome the people who." are represented by the Ark of the Covenant, we're also motivated to get rid of this thing. (laughs) And when you read through chapter 4 and 5 and 6, and you see how the Philistines treated this, and you think about those poor old cows (laughs) who were given the task of taking the Ark of the Covenant out of their land. What did they ever do to anybody, right? They're just minding their own business, trying to, you know, Provide calves so that you can eat them or so that you can, you know, graze them, sell them, you know, whatever you want to do with the cows. They, they, they were just innocent, poor two cows that were now given this task. They've never been yoked. They've never pulled a trailer in their life. But now they've been given this task to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. Must have been an amazing sight to be there in the field like the Israelites were when they saw it coming. But once again, the Israelites had less respect for the Ark of the Covenant than the Philistines had because... Seventy men died in trying to retrieve it. But the Philistines were opposed to Israel and Israel were oppressed because of their enemy. And this would be the people that God would use to work in their midst over the next few generations, through the next few kings. But in the midst of all of this that was going on, in this unfaithful people, there was one faithful heart. I'm sure that Hannah was not the only one, but there was at least one faithful heart. 
And I don't think that it's any coincidence that in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel we find about a woman who is in a household envious, if you will, for what is there in the household. Her husband marries her apparently first and when she find, or when he finds out that he can't have a son through her because she's barren, he apparently marries again. The second wife has children. And here his wife that he truly loves, he married her from the beginning. She's left there in the household with children that aren't hers. And she looks around and she pleads with God. She prays to God. If you'd give me a child, I would, I would lend him back to you to be a minister. I would, even as a Nazarite, I would not touch his head with a razor. I would, I would let him be your servant. And you think about a nation that's faithless. That's in this country. They look around and they see a bunch of other nations that have kings. And they're wondering, what about us? As we'll see later on in the book of Samuel, and as we've already, again, reviewed in our Christian growth groups, that that was their plea. Give us a king. And all along, God had a plan. But in Hannah, we see that, first of all, from this faithful one, that we see an answer to her prayer. When she returns back to Eli... He says, this is the boy for which I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I have asked of him. So I have dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives, and he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. We read a little bit of Hannah's prayer during the early part of the service today. But I'd like for you to listen, and if you're there, read along. For it says, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord, indeed there is no one besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly, do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, and the feeble gird on strength. Those who were for were full, hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry ceased to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king. There's a prophetic word for you. Don't set yourself against God because he will give strength to his king. And will exalt the horn of his anointed. Interestingly enough, this is the first usage of this term that we often translate Messiah or anointed one. Chosen one. And I don't think it is by accident that we find it here. That as Israel is about to pursue for themselves a king... That God, through Hannah's word, makes it very clear that I have a king and I will give him strength and I will exalt him. Now, his, her son Samuel was not going to be that one. But her prayer did demonstrate her hope in the sovereign God. And that he would deliver his people and judge the world through his anointed one. In Psalm 89, verse 20 through 24, I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn 
be exalted. Sounds a little bit like what Hannah had prayed. That there was a coming king. And David would be a great king, but he would not be the ultimate king. But it would be through the line of David in which he would come and will come. But as we think about Samuel, as much of chapter 7 deals with, and Samuel becomes a very important figure throughout the rest of this book, we see a few couple of things about this rise of a faithful servant. First of all, we see that he grew in stature and favor. Verse 26 of chapter 2 says, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Later on, in chapter 3, verse 19, we see thus Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. So there's a couple of things here that we want to take notice of Samuel. First of all, he grew in stature and favor with God and with man. And if you're familiar at all with the story of the nativity, which we're about to become really engulfed in, right? When we think about the child Jesus Christ, it's interesting that Luke chapter 2 verse 52 tells us that Jesus grew up in stature. He grew up in favor with men. He grew up in favor with God. Samuel being God's servant grows in very much the same way that Jesus Christ himself grew up. But more importantly, as it relates particularly to that third point in which there was the word of the Lord was rare, that when Samuel came along and was a minister for God, that again in chapter 3 verse 19 we see that his words did not fall to the ground. In other words, what Samuel prophesied happened. That was Moses' criteria, that if you want to know if a man is a true prophet of God, what he says will come true. If something that he says doesn't come true, then you can write him off. For Samuel, God did not let his words fall to the ground unfulfilled. You could trust what he had to say. He was a true servant of God. Now it was very important because remember we left off Israel having seen 70 men die because they were trying to take the Ark of the Covenant back. Everything sort of settled down a little bit, but you know what? They still have an enemy that's oppressing them, the Philistines. So what do you do? Well, when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, a very interesting message. He didn't say, okay guys, now if we really get our, our battle plan together and if we go back and study how all the, the warriors fought in days gone by and if we, we think about how even Moses and in his day where they were able to defeat the enemy, and if we could learn how and we could figure out what the weaknesses of the Philistines were and if we could try to you know, really just rest up and get a good night's sleep and then we really attack them at night and we'll surprise them. No, there wasn't anything like that. Samuel's message in their attempt to confront that which oppressed them was a return to the Lord. For he says in verse 3, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So this has absolutely nothing to do with how you're going to confront the enemy. This has everything to do with how you're going to fall on your face before God. And He will deliver you from your enemies. Let me ask you today. Who's fighting your battles for you? How are you fighting your battles? Are you doing them in your own strength? Are you coming up with the solutions in your own wisdom? Are you doing that which is which seems right in your own eyes? Is the word of the Lord rare in your life? Are you making decisions based again on your own experience or somebody else's wisdom or are you basing it on God's word? How's your relationship with the Lord? You have a great high priest if you're a believer. 
But are you trusting? Are you relating to Him every day properly? Through Christ? Or are you trying to do things and live the right way so that He can be pleased with you? Are you trying to satisfy God's demands for righteousness in your own efforts? Are you every day and every moment of your life trusting and resting upon what Jesus Christ did on your behalf? If you're not, if you're living doing that which is right in your own eyes, if you're living in a life in which the word of the Lord is rare, if you're living not enjoying the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ on your behalf before God, and you find yourself oppressed by the enemy, please hear this. Put away your false gods. Put away those things that you're living for. Direct your heart to the Lord. And serve Him only. And He will deliver you from your enemies. Very interesting. We don't have time to turn here. But in Psalm 78, the psalmist is giving a historical review of God and His people. He brought them to this holy land, to the mountain which is which His right hand won. He drove out the nations before them. He appointed for them... Uh, for, he appointed them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies. They turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked Him to anger with their high places. They moved Him with jealousy with their idols. When God heard, He was full of wrath and He utterly rejected Israel. He forsook His dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where He dwelt among mankind and delivered His power to captivity, His glory to the hand of the foe. He allowed the Ark of the Covenant to go into the hands of the Philistines. And He gave His people over to the sword and vented His wrath on His heritage through the Philistines. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword. That would be Eli's two sons. And when Eli heard about it, he violently threw himself backwards, broke his neck, and he died. And widows made no lamentation except for one of Eli's daughter-in-laws who had a son before her husband died. Or after her husband died. And you might recall his name, Ichabod. For God's glory has left this place. That's all that God had left His people. Lamenting. However, I love this. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep. (laughs) Like a strong man shouting because of wine. And He put His adversaries to rout and He put them to everlasting shame. Because there was a call of repentance. There was a turning away from the idols. There was a directing of my heart to God. And there was a service to Him alone. And it was like God woke up. God wasn't asleep. God wasn't dead. God was not away. But is it related to the people as if He woke up and took care of the enemy? The Philistines were defeated. We have a promised King and He is our great High Priest. He is the Word. And one day every nation is going to be under His footstool. This is the God who has brought us thus far. Samuel set up a stone. They called it Ebenezer. Not Scrooge. Some of you, that's the only relationship you have with that word or that name. But Ebenezer means so much more than anything that a a fictional story could ever provide. Ebenezer means God has brought us thus far. The hymn that we sang earlier, Come Thou Fount, uses that word. Here I raise. Here I set up my rock. 
Here I raise up my memorial to God who has brought me thus far. But let me tell you an interesting story that I don't know if it's true or not. Everything you found on the internet, I don't, I don't believe you can always say it's true. I think it's very interesting that the hymn writer of Come Thou Fount was converted as he was a, had the reputation of being a very wild young man. But under the preaching of George Whitfield was converted. He later became a pastor. He wrote a couple of hymns, one of which is Come Thou Fount. But something happened. He wandered away from the Lord. He, he went away from his ministry. Years later, it was said that a, he was riding in a stagecoach. And in the stagecoach, there was a woman who was humming the tune and singing the words to Come Thou Fount. And when the woman had paused, he took an opportunity to say, Young lady, I just want you to know that I'm the poor soul that wrote those words. And I would give a thousand worlds if I could find the joy that I had when I wrote it. And it said that the woman responded back to her that those streams of mercy have never ceased to flow. I would like for you to understand today that there may be a time in your life where you knew the joy that only a saving God could provide to you because it meant forgiveness of your sins. It meant that you understood the great cost and the wrath of God that was burning down on you had been laid upon Him. And by faith, you received this wonderful gift of grace. But maybe you too have wondered. And even as the hymn writer put, prone to wonder the God I love. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. That we ask for Him to, as it were, put a fetter on us so that we do not stray from Him. But perhaps you have. Perhaps you have. I want to encourage you today to put away those idols. Turn your heart to God and serve Him only. But the best news is, is if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you come here feeling the guilt and the weight of your sin, perhaps a nation with no king, a land where the word of God was, the word of the Lord was rare, a corrupt priesthood, all those things kind of summarize your life. Because you're doing what is right in your own eyes. But the Holy Spirit is impressing upon you guilt to, to repent. To bring you to a point of understanding that Christ has paid it all. And that you'd come to Him today in believing faith. In trusting Him. And that all of us will one day say, Thus far the Lord has brought me right here. Setting my Ebenezer up today. I'm praising Him.